We have a special treat for you if you'll indulge us. We'd love to play for you our submission for this year's Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah, yeah, ding dong. Okay. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the I'm Emma and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 208, Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener of this podcast, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. But before I go into that movie and Eurovision specifically, I just want to say a huge thank you for the amazing reception to some of the most recent episodes of this podcast. So I've recently done episodes on Bring It On and Wreck-It Ralph. And really, it's the surprising depth of a teen cheerleader comedy and the surprising depth of a movie about video games. And I'm always floored by the reception to the episodes that I do. Wreck-It Ralph in particular has been incredibly popular. And I mean, why would it not be? It is an absolutely fantastic movie. And Bring It On is also genuinely one of my favourite movies ever. I absolutely adore it. And with both movies, just to coin a Transformers phrase, there's more than meets the eye with both Bring It On and Wreck-It Ralph. And really, we're moving on to this week's episode and the surprising depth of a movie about Eurovision and the surprising depth of Eurovision itself. We're going to be going from Niceland to Iceland. Obviously, you won't get that if you've never seen Wreck-It Ralph, but if you do, then see what I did there. And just before I start, I want to apologise up front if I butcher any Icelandic names, any Icelandic words, in fact, any foreign names or words, because surprisingly this is a podcast episode about the Eurovision movie so therefore it is a podcast episode about Eurovision so there are a lot of European references in this podcast and I am but a humble Brit I do try my very best with correct pronunciations I do research correct pronunciations genuinely I do but sometimes I do get it wrong and if I do I humbly apologize let's just jump straight in with the trailer for Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Ever since we were children, we've had one dream. Winning the Eurovision Song Contest. All right, everyone. I am Lars. This is Sigrid. We are Fire Saga. Who wants to hear Eurovision song? All of 
Iceland think we are a joke. That's not true. And my father is ashamed of me. No, he's not. He looked me into the eyes and said, I am ashamed of you. Maybe he was drunk. He said, and you might think that I'm drunk, but I am dead sober. Idiot. Officially, Fire Saga will be representing Iceland at Eurovision this year. I hate them. Absolutely terrible. They're old, disgusting people. But we have no choice. So we're in. Yep. 42 countries, hundreds of performers, and a worldwide audience of 180 million. This is Eurovision. Wow! You have to watch that guy. He is a sex player. Hey, looking good. Secret, very beautiful voice. Thank you. We are a duo that will never be separated. George Michael said something about other well guy. <laughs> no one even knows his name. Andrew Ridgely. You have to stay focused. We need to win. What are you doing? I just want my ding-dong to look bigger than what is really there. Smart. Yeah. I could do a camel. Do a classic camel. It's never out of style. Yeah. This is it. We have to prove to Iceland and my extremely handsome father that my life hasn't been a waste. for both of us. Lars, you are a dreamer. My dreamer. Ah, we can't. Really? Romance, it ruins the band. Fleetwood Mac, Ace of Base, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, I forgot about Simon. Where the mountains sing to the screams of seagulls. Firesager are not giving up. Tonight is our night. You don't have a single chance of making it. Stop laughing, I'm trying to fight you! You hit me, but very light, like silky kitty fish in marshmallow boxing glove. <laughs> Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, follows the journey of two Icelandic musicians, Lars and Sigrid, who dream of winning the prestigious Eurovision Song Contest. Despite facing ridicule and opposition from their own community, the duo manages to secure a spot in the competition and travels to Edinburgh to compete against singers from all over Europe. As they navigate their way through the various challenges and obstacles, Lars and Sigrid discover new things about themselves and each other, leading them to find success in unexpected ways. Let's run through the cast. We have Will Ferrell as Lars Eriksson, Rachel McAdams as Sigrid Eric's daughter, Dan Stevens as Alexander Lemtov, Melisanthi Mahut as Mita Zanakis, Mikhail Persbrandt as Victor Carlson, Oliver Darry Olafsson as Niels Brongus, Graham Norton as himself, Demi Lovato as Katiana Lynn's daughter, and Pierce Brosnan as Eric Eriksson. Featuring cameos by former Eurovision contestants John Ludwig, Anna Odubescu, Bilal Hassani, Lorene, Jesse Matador, Alexander Ryback, Jamala, Elena Nechayeva, Conchita Verst, Netta and Salvador Sobral, plus Molly Sandon, who co-sang with Rachel McAdams. Their voices were blended on the tracks. She is credited as My Marianne and Petra Nilsson, who dubbed for Melisanthi Mahat's singing voice and Eric M. Jones, who dubbed for Dan Stevens. 
Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, was written by Will Ferrell and Andrew Steele and was directed by David Dobkin. Now, the Eurovision Song Contest is a global event that pretty much all of Europe definitely knows about. Australia knows about it and has competed. Countries in Northern Africa know about it and have competed. And almost 70 years later, the USA is finally cottoning onto it. So much so that in March 2022, the American Song Contest debuted on NBC, attempting to bring Eurovision to the States. But instead of countries competing, it was American states. Let's just say it didn't last very long. It was cancelled after one series. And this was despite the participation of Michael Bolton, Jewel, Cisco, Macy Gray. But famous names are not exempt from competing in Eurovision. Heaven knows the UK have tried. And the thing is, Eurovision really can't be copied. It's exclusively European. It's campy, kitsch, cheesy. And it's a celebration of Europe being European, embracing European culture and language. And like all countries in Europe, it has a rich and varied history. A history that starts in Italy in the aftermath of World War II in 1948 with the Italian Song Festival, a way to revitalise the economy and public morale, which became the basis for the San Remo Music Festival, which debuted in 1951. The San Remo Music Festival was used as the inspiration for the Eurovision Song Contest, which debuted in 1956 and was originally conceived as an experiment in transnational television broadcasting following not only Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953, but also a series of exchange broadcasts in 1954. The inaugural contest, which was the only one to allow multiple entries per nation, had seven countries participating, each of which sent two songs. Refrain, sung by Lise Asia and representing the host nation of Switzerland, was the inaugural winning song. The tradition of the winning country hosting the following year's contest which has since become a standard feature of the event, began in 1958. That isn't always the case, as it is for the 2023 contest. So as of recording, this year's contest. And as of this episode coming out, it is the contest happening this very weekend. And the 2023 competition is being hosted here in the UK. And that's not because the UK won last year, because we did not. It's because the winners last year were Ukraine. Because the war is still ongoing in the country, as we were second place last year, the UK are hosting the event on behalf of Ukraine. It's worth noting that Russia are currently prohibited from entering the contest due to the invasion of Ukraine, and they have been since 2022. As I said, we came second last year, thanks Sam Ryder, and that was an incredible achievement considering that we don't normally do very well as a country in Eurovision. Eurovision is often accused of political voting and neighbouring countries often vote for each other. So the joke Alexander Lemtov says about no one liking the UK is kind of true, except for last year because everyone loves Sam Ryder. He's truly terrific. But chances are that everyone listening to this podcast will know an act that has performed at Eurovision. Here's some huge names if you don't know. So ABBA is probably the biggest Eurovision winner of all time. They debuted at Eurovision with Waterloo in 1974. They also won that year. Celine Dion also performed, winning in 1988 for Switzerland. Cliff Richard took part in 1968, coming second. And the late Olivia Newton-John also took part in 1974, four years before her starring role in Greece. Eurovision has been held annually since 1956, apart from, of course, in 2020. It is the longest-running annual international televised music competition and one of the world's longest-running television programmes. 
It's organised yearly by the European Broadcasting Union, or EBU. You'll notice at the start of this movie that this movie is in conjunction with the EBU, so it adds a level of authenticity to the movie it wouldn't otherwise have and taps into the genuine passion for Eurovision by Eurovision. And a brief disclaimer, I do enjoy Eurovision. I genuinely do, but I wouldn't say that I'm a hardcore fan. But I do know that there will be many people listening who are hardcore fans of Eurovision. I know Dave and Soph from Not For The Dinner Table are huge fans of Eurovision, and I know that they're currently in Liverpool right now to see the semi-finals. I'm just a casual Eurovision fan. I tend to maybe watch the final if I've got nothing on on a Saturday evening and it's on. Hardcore Eurovision fans, they know everything. They're so passionate about Eurovision. And so this movie, being the official Eurovision movie, had to not only introduce Eurovision to people who had no idea what Eurovision was, but also please ardent Eurovision fans. And while the story of Eurovision starts almost 70 years ago, the story to the making of this movie starts in 1999. Will Ferrell, then an up-and-coming comedy actor straight out of Saturday Night Live, was dating his future wife, Viveka Paulin, and they took a trip to her home country of Sweden to visit her family. While there, Eurovision was on, and this was Ferrell's introduction to the song contest. He immediately saw the event's comedy potential, he and Paulin would marry the following year, they went on to have three sons, and his career as a comedy actor grew, and he became one of the biggest actors in Hollywood. But clearly, Eurovision had left its mark. Sweden did also win that year, which no doubt helped, but Will Ferrell is actually a huge fan of Eurovision. He went to see the song contest in Copenhagen in 2014, the year Conchita Verst won. He met with executives and he asked about the potential for a Eurovision film. A comedy that would embrace the fun, kitsch side of the competition, but also be a love letter to the event's earnest artistry. And the EBU were not only incredibly willing to allow Ferrell to make a movie with their blessing, they would also end up being remarkably hands-off. They did set out a few rules so the film couldn't mock Eurovision in a cruel fashion, for example. But otherwise, they just let him pretty much run with what he wanted to do. Ferrell would visit the song contest on multiple more occasions, including 2018 in Lisbon, where he visited the press office as part of the Swedish delegation and watched the show from start to finish, including rehearsals. It was at this point that some Eurovision blogs wondered if something was up. Was he just a really committed fan? Or was he researching for a movie role? He and his producing partner Andrew Steele set about writing a script back in 2014, and this was after no one else took it upon themselves to make a movie about Eurovision. The rights were Will Ferrell's, and he secured a deal with Netflix to distribute the movie. The script was sent to David Dobkin, director of Wedding Crashers and The Change-Up, who originally declined it until he realised it had been written by Will Ferrell. The script needed some work, they needed to flesh out characters, but Dobkin had wanted to work with Ferrell for years. He'd never heard of Eurovision, but as soon as he started researching, he fell in love with a sense of camaraderie and community among all the countries who participate. Like Ferrell, he didn't want to make a parody. He wanted to strike a balance between the natural comedy of the event and have a heartfelt story underneath. And Dobkin had started out in music videos. He'd worked with Tupac in the past. And so it felt a natural fit for him to make a movie about music. In March 2019, David Dobkin officially signed on to direct the film. In May 2019, Rachel McAdams joined the cast. McAdams and Ferrell were spotted at the dress rehearsals for the Eurovision Song Contest 2019 in Tel Aviv, Israel, the stage of which was later rebuilt on a soundstage in London for the in-contest scenes of the movie, while plate shots were done with the real-life live audience back in Tel Aviv. 
In August 2019, Pierce Brosnan, Dan Stevens and Demi Lovato joined the cast. And all of them trained with dialect coaches for Icelandic accents, apart from Dan Stevens, obviously. And filming commenced in Edinburgh and Glasgow and in Iceland. And with the emotional central art being, essentially, there's no place like home, just like in The Wizard of Oz, which is episode 200 of this podcast, by the way. Rather than set the base of the movie in Iceland's capital, Reykjavik, they instead scouted small towns and they shortlisted two. They chose Husavik on the northern coast and filming took place in October 2019 with many of the town's residents as extras and renting their homes to the crew. The Icelandic government reimbursed the costs of the production by 135 million Icelandic krona, or $1 million. The production spent $3.6 million shooting on location in the country. The University of Iceland in Reykjavik stood in as the Icelandic public television building. And this movie was shot between August and November 2019. And it was out the following June, which is remarkably quick post-production. David Dobkin had been a fan of Dan Stevens for a while, and after seeing him in Beauty and the Beast, realised that he was not only into singing, but that he was quite good too. Dobkin played Stevens a demo of the song Lion of Love, and together they used that to build the bombastic character of Alexander Lemtov, possibly the broadest character in the movie, but he's also closeted, and we discover there's a touching sad inner life to him. Now, Eurovision has always embraced LGBTQ culture, as well as ethnic culture and diversity. And this is probably one of the reasons why it has such a huge international fan base. The first openly gay act, Paul Oscar, actually represented Iceland in 1997. While Eurovision does actively work to include LGBTQ performers and fans, it doesn't mean that it's immune from criticism. Dana International, the first trans performer's selection to perform on behalf of Israel in 1998, meant death threats, and reportedly her accommodation in Birmingham had to have bulletproof windows. Countries like Turkey and Hungary have refused to participate over the years because of their anti-LGBTQ sentiments, but many LGBTQ performers have competed and gone on to win, including Dana International, Conchita Verse, the openly gay drag act of Thomas Newworth, bisexual Duncan Lawrence and Maneskin with their openly bisexual bassist Victoria DeAngelis, and in 2021, Nikki DeJager became the first trans person to host the contest. But back to Alexander Lentov, who, when asked if he's gay, openly refuses the notion before suggesting, quote-unquote, Mother Russia won't allow it. And I think that's part of the reason why the audience just warms to the character, despite the fact that he's essentially trying to break Lars and Sigrid up. He's only been able to have been allowed his level of fame and success at the cost of hiding his true self. And that is not what Eurovision is about. It's about embracing your truth. And Dan Stevens was originally going to sing Alexander Lemtov's song and have his vocals blended with Eric Jones. But then COVID happened. And so they couldn't record and it just never happened. Now, when it comes to accuracy in the movie, there are several very accurate things. There are also a few very inaccurate things as well. But the most incredibly accurate thing about this movie is the fact that Iceland don't actually want to win. And as far as Eurovision is concerned, there are countries that are trying to lose purely because there is a rule that if you win, you have to host the following year. Ireland, for instance, have won so many times, it's unreal. And for a while, they just kept winning and winning. And it basically almost drove the nation of Ireland into bankruptcy. Since hosting Eurovision attracts hundreds of thousands of spectators each year, it's incredibly expensive to host. And so they basically said, we can't possibly win again. And so their official act 
in 2008 was a puppet called Dustin the Turkey. And he sang a song called Irland Dus Poix. And it goes without saying that they finally lost that year. But the idea that a small country like Iceland wouldn't want to win Eurovision is completely factual because it's really expensive. And a small country like Iceland doesn't have the money or the infrastructure to actually be able to host a huge international competition like Eurovision. And perhaps one of the reasons why Iceland was chosen as the country in the movie is simply the fact that Iceland is the only Northern European country that has yet to win the Eurovision Song Contest. One of the most blatant inaccuracies about the movie is the semi-finals are not done like that. The whole point system is not done for the semi-finals. That's purely for the finals. And also there's something called the Big Five Countries and they are the UK, Germany, France, Spain and Italy. And they do not feature in the semi-finals because the Big Five get an automatic pass into the finals, mostly because they each make the biggest contribution to the EBU. Also, the host country for the previous year is also automatically in. And in this movie, the host country is the UK because it's being held in Edinburgh in Scotland. So technically, in the universe, that means that the UK won the previous year. And so even if we weren't a big five country, we would automatically get a pass immediately through to the finals. Obviously, that means that this year with Ukraine being the previous winner, Ukraine would automatically get a pass through to the final of this year's event. Another remarkable accuracy in this movie is acts will be disqualified for changing their song last minute. But despite this film being set in Iceland, none of the names are actually very Icelandic. Now, Icelandic is a patronymic society. So children generally get their names from their father, but sometimes from their mother. And it's suffixed with son or daughter depending on whether the child is male or female. Non-binary people are also covered under Icelandic law. They are suffixed as burr. So the name Lars, which technically isn't an Icelandic name, and it's very rare to have in the country, but it is approved. And I'm going to come to approved names in a bit. So Lars Eriksson is Lars, the son of Eric. But the movie actually spells the surname incorrectly because it spells it Eriks, S-O-N-G which it should be Eric's S-O-N. So that's not correct. And Sigrid is not an Icelandic name, but her surname is correctly Eric's daughter, daughter of Eric. Possibly the same Eric, who knows? The movie never makes it clear. But Eric isn't an approved Icelandic name either. And the reason I mention approved Icelandic names is that Iceland is really strict on what you can actually name a child. It has a list of approved names. And if the name is not on the list, it must be approved by the Icelandic Naming Committee. It is possible that the names were chosen to be easy to pronounce. But as part of my research for this movie, I actually watched an Icelandic woman on YouTube watching this movie. And she specifically mentions that none of the names in the movie are actually Icelandic. Elf houses, though, are totally real. Icelandic elves are called huldafolk. They are literally the hidden people. Not all people in Iceland believe in them, but some do. They are said to be supernatural. They live inside large rocks. And there are stories of machines breaking down, workers becoming ill, when they interfere with elf rocks. So, for example, if they're trying to build a new road and they try and move an elf rock, weird things will start to happen. And these elf rocks are protected too. A Conservation Act was introduced in 1990 with a clause protecting sites traditionally deemed to have supernatural significance on the proviso that they have been associated with such phenomena for at least 100 years. 
The little houses that you see in the movie, they do also exist, although they're mostly just seen as decoration rather than the actual homes of these elves because they live in the rocks. Speaking of decoration, I'm going to segue quite nicely into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. And let me tell you how difficult it's been to link Keanu to the Eurovision Song Contest or Eurovision as a whole. Now, basically, this is part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And it's a tradition that goes back all the way, I believe, to episode 13 of this podcast or something ridiculous like that. And every single time I have successfully, in a menagerie of ways, linked the movie to Keanu Reeves. And this is, I swear to God, the worst one ever. I've said that a few times. This is genuinely the worst one. Because I genuinely hoped that Keanu might have gone to watch Eurovision at one point. And maybe he'd been photographed with a Eurovision winner or something, anything. But he hasn't. And while I could just use the, he's Canadian like Rachel McAdams. And to be honest, I was teetering on that for a while. That was my backup option. Because if all else fails, link him via being from Canada. I decided to go for something even more tenuous than that. So the way I'm linking Keanu Reeves to this movie is not by Keanu, but by Kano. I told you it was bad. Kano are a Norwegian band who represented their country in 2019. They came in sixth. And Kano sounds a little bit like Keanu. And it's also spelled a little bit like Keanu as well. So it's spelled K-E-I-I-N-O. Very, very simple. And I'm so sorry. It's the worst one that I've ever done. And uh, I can only apologise to Keanu Reeves, Eurovision the band Kano, literally everyone. But I guess Keanu's Canadian, just like Rachel McAdams. There we go. I've saved it. If you're going to talk about this particular movie, you have to talk about the music because Eurovision is nothing without its music. Music is at the heart of everything Eurovision. And Eurovision is about all sorts of music, but mostly ridiculous, catchy, and so the music in this movie had to be just as good as much of what Eurovision gives us anyway. And the songs were designed to walk the fine line between satire and homage, but they also wanted them to be songs that could work in Eurovision. So the filmmakers hired Savan Kotecha, who's written and produced pop songs for artists like Ariana Grande, Katy Perry and Ellie Goulding to work on the soundtrack. And Eurovision is kind of mocked by serious songwriters within the larger pop community. But Europop has always been a bit of a high art unto itself. So Kotecha gathered a group of writers to aid in the process, almost all of whom were from Scandinavia. And I don't know if any of you have had the absolute pleasure and privilege to watch the TV series Girls 5 Ever. It's absolutely wonderful. Please watch Girls 5 Ever. But there's a line in Girls 5 Ever about if you want a great music producer, you always go to a Scandinavian country. And that is exactly what Savan Kotecha did. The creators of this movie also enlisted So You Think You Can Dance and American Idol alums Tabitha and Napoleon Dumo to create the choreography for this movie. So let's talk about a few of the songs in this movie and some very specific facts about these songs. One of the things that I love is the very first song that we hear is a song called Volcano Man. And that was influenced in part by Ross in Friends, specifically the episode where Ross plays his keyboard and he takes himself so super seriously. And that was basically the premise of the song Volcano Man. 
And it was double trouble that really kind of sealed the deal for this movie because once David Dobkin heard Double Trouble, produced by Savan Kotecha, it was basically then he asked him to produce the entire soundtrack for the film. Kotecha also discovered that Swedish singer Molly Sanden was in town and he had her record a demo of the song as Sigrid. Sanden once placed third in the Junior Eurovision Song Contest in 2006, wound up singing on Fire Saga songs, but the music team also recorded Rachel McAdams and her voice was blended with Sanden's. And at some points, Kotecha would say that there were some parts of the songs where you couldn't tell whether it was Molly Sanden or Rachel McAdams. Production designer Paul Inglis would help create the fire effects for the stage, rear projection and the giant hamster wheel for Lars. This was a prop inspired by a real event that happened in Eurovision by Ukrainian singer Maria Yeremchuk's infamous performance at the 2014 contest. Alexander Lemtov, as I said, the in-the-closet Russian who acts very overly macho, Kotecha co-wrote the song Lion of Love with Swedish collaborators Rami Yakub and Johan Carlsson. And basically, they took the idea of a lion of love as a metaphor and just ran with it. Inspiration for Lemtov came from Russian singer Philip Kerkorov, who competed at Eurovision in 1995. And they wanted to go very highly sexualized with Lemtov's dance moves and his interactions with his male dancers. One of the great challenges, actually, for Paul Inglis and his team for the many songs within this movie is the imagery, especially when you have a massive 80-foot-wide, 24-foot-tall video wall that dominates the stage. This stage was 250-foot long and shot at Warner Studios in Watford. Every performance had to have its own imagery that was in time with the music, hit certain beats and have movements within so that when you hit a chorus, it changes and develops. Doing all that in post was simply not an option. The animations for those were created by Territorial Studios here in the UK. And although you only see snippets of each song in the movie, the movie shot all of the songs in their entirety and had full light and video shows timed to each song. Anyone who's watched Eurovision will know it's never just about the song. It's about the whole performance, the stage, the effects, the production values, the costumes. Everything in this movie had to match that level of authenticity. The audience was another thing the filmmakers couldn't really fake. David Dobkin didn't want to go the computer-generated crowd route like Bohemian Rhapsody did because Eurovision is held in these huge stadiums. So, as I mentioned, they went to the 2019 Eurovision competition in Tel Aviv and they captured plate shots and footage of the crowds watching the show. Dan Stevens actually performed Lion of Love for the audience in Tel Aviv as one of the two songs and it was basically to capture audience reactions. This was completed over five nights of filming with three cameras and every night the song played, something happened when Lion of Love started. People genuinely loved the song. People in the audience were dancing to it. It's quite the reaction that Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams would get when they performed their song for the audience. But I guess, you know, Alexander Lentov, he's very sexual and he's a billionaire. And who doesn't love Dan Stevens? He's great. He is very good looking. I'm not going to lie. So Mita's song, Come and Play, was written by Thomas Giesen, a writer whose pieces have reached Eurovision 13 times and who won in 2012 with the Swedish entry Euphoria. Euphoria, performed by Lorene, who is also cameos in this movie. If you've never heard the song Euphoria by Lorene, it is one of the greatest Eurovision songs that's ever been produced and ever won. 
There's also a song called Running With The Wolves by Moonfang, and that was initially supposed to be a weird Dutch version of a rockabilly band. And they tried so many times to create a rockabilly song, but it wasn't working. And so instead, Cortecha commissioned a heavy metal disco number from Andreas Carlson, who wrote NSYNC's Bye 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 and the Backstreet Boys' I Want It That Way. The result also served as a tribute to Lordi, the Finnish heavy metal band that won in 2006 with hard rock Hallelujah. Again, please go on YouTube and watch the video for Lordi's hard rock Hallelujah. It is spectacular. And probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie is the scene that takes place in one of Lemtov's many homes, where the cast and past Eurovision winners and contestants join in in an elaborate mashup medley of Cher's Believe, Madonna's Ray of Light, Celine Dion's Nepate Passamwa, The Black Eyed Peas, I Got a Feeling, and Abba's Waterloo. The song along sequence had been written into Will Ferrell and Andrew Steele's script with a note about possibly trying to get former contestants to participate. Dobkin initially thought of getting Abba and Celine Dion, although they would both decline. And so the final track includes performances from past Eurovision stars, from Sweden's Loreen, as I said, Please listen to Euphoria, it's fantastic. Also from Sweden, John Lundvik, Austria's Conchita Verst, Ukraine's Jamala, Belarusian Norwegian Alexander Ryback, and Israel's Netta, all accompanying Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams, Melisanti Mahut, and Dan Stevens' characters. For the actual scene in the film, the production shot a Nebworth House, which is a Tudor Gothic mansion here in the UK, and it was chosen because it has a good flow from room to room. And so production would then add gold-plated supercars, ice sculptures, naked statues of Lemtov, trampolines, marble and disco balls to make it extra fabulous. And I can't not mention Yaya Ding Dong, because Yaya Ding Dong has its own lasting legacy. It's apparently a bar anthem in Iceland, as well as now a running joke in Eurovision. Hans Olli Augusten returned to the Eurovision Song Contest 2021 as Olaf Johansson. And Olaf Johansson is basically the guy in this movie obsessed with Fire Saga playing Yaya Ding Dong. And he returned to Eurovision for the voting portion of the final, where he delivered the points on behalf of the Icelandic jury. He attempts to award 12 points to Yaya Ding Dong when announcing Iceland's jury scores, but then he's informed that it's not permitted. And so he reluctantly awards the 12 points to Switzerland. Now, in an interesting twist for this movie, Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, was supposed to open theatrically for a week in late May 2020 to coincide with the Eurovision Song Contest 2020. But then COVID-19 happened and the Eurovision Song Contest 2020 was cancelled. So Eurovision's movie not only had to stand on its own on Netflix, it also technically stood in for the real thing. It released on Netflix on the 26th of June 2020 and then was aired in addition to the 2021 competition in most of the participating nations the following year in May 2021. Ironically as well, Netflix acquired the American streaming rights of both the 2019 and the 2020 Eurovision Song Contest after announcing they were distributing this film. Obviously, the 2020 Eurovision Song Contest didn't end up happening. And you'll notice there's one song that I haven't really talked about. And that is the song Husevik which Sigrid is writing throughout the movie, and it is a love letter to her hometown. It is a truly beautiful song, and this is a movie that's full of great songs. Technically, if they'd entered Husevik into the contest as their genuine entry, there's a chance it probably would have won, but that's not the point of the movie. 
And as I said, the fact that they changed their entry at the last minute meant that the Icelandic duo were disqualified from the competition. But Husavik would go on to ensure that Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, would become an Oscar-nominated film. Because while this film is a comedy, the music is no joke. And as I said, they really took pains to make sure the music was as authentic as it could possibly be. And Husavik would receive an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song. It obviously wouldn't win, but the fact that this soundtrack has Oscar-nominated music does slightly elevate it. Probably from most Eurovision participants, to be honest. I mean, if you've heard any of the UK's entries from sort of the mid-2000s, honestly, some of them are terrible. There are some really bad Eurovision UK entries. But Husavik is a genuinely wonderful song, and it's sung so beautifully by Molly Sandon and Rachel McAdams. And although Will Ferrell does do his own singing in the movie, thankfully that was one that he kind of stepped back from, and it let Husavik shine without him. Now, normally at this point, I'd go through social media thoughts. But to be honest, all I got was play yo yo ding dong. I joke, I didn't actually ask this time. But I figured that if I did ask, all I'd get is play yo yo ding dong. But I just wanted to mention that one of my favourite Pixar movies is The Incredibles. And what is one of Edna Mode's rules in The Incredibles? The rule is no capes. And this movie clearly depicts why Edna Mode has the no capes rule, even though The Incredibles also depicts why you have the no capes rule. Now, the Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, it's not a perfect movie. It's just, it's just not. And there are still things that irk me about it. And one of the things that really irks me the most is that Will Ferrell is clearly 11 years older than Rachel McAdams. But according to Flashback, there's like a year between them. Now, I definitely enjoy this movie more for Rachel McAdams than I do for Will Ferrell. Although you have to appreciate that without Will Ferrell, this movie would never have been made in the first place. And to be honest, you have to give an American props, not only for getting a Eurovision movie off the ground, but also being willing to basically take the mickey out of Americans in this movie. And while the comedy is sometimes a little bit too silly for Eurovision, which I can't believe I'm actually saying, it's so clear that the movie has so much love for its subject. It's not completely accurate in every regard, but it also kind of doesn't have to be. As an introduction to Eurovision for the rest of the world that doesn't know about this eccentric, enthusiastic European song contest, it works. And as an homage to the contest, a love letter to its fans and participants, it also works. Eurovision is silly, and this movie embraces that silliness with aplomb. But it's also an earnest attempt at getting countries to work together, support each other, vote for each other, and crown a worthy winner. Yes, Eurovision gets political. And yes, everyone probably still hates the UK, except Sam Ryder, because Sam Ryder is wonderful. If you want a good laugh, as I say, research previous UK acts that haven't done very well. But the thing is, it is a big deal to represent your country in anything. And while Eurovision has been laughed off in the past, it is actually a fairly respectable way to get your name out there. Sam Ryder is a wonderful example of that. And so while this episode is being released a few days before the Eurovision final, held in Liverpool, that was totally on purpose. It's also a reminder why this event is being held in the UK. Ukraine is still fighting an invasion against Russia, the actual bad guys in this movie. And the UK supports Ukraine. We stand by Ukraine. The whole of Europe supports and stands by Ukraine. And if you can, please consider donating to a charity that supports Ukraine this very difficult time for the country. Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga is a little daft. 
it drags on for far too long, and it is ridiculously predictable, just like the real song contest. But there's no doubting its warmth, vibrancy, and eccentricity, and the fact it does capture the spirit of the contest. The idea of the contest is that participants will win you over with their charm, not by necessarily being the most talented, but by being themselves. Just like Lars and Sigrid. Get back in there right now and play Ya Ya Ding Dong! Oh, okay, okay, I'll play it. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. And as always, if you're listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast. And I'm so grateful for your support. But if you do want to do a tiny little bit more, you could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. Ideally, five stars if you can. And if you feel I deserve it, you can also find me at Verbal Diorama on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And you can retweet or like posts across those social media platforms. Or you can simply tell your friends or family about this episode, especially if they're a fan of Eurovision, especially if they have seen Fire Saga. But even if they haven't seen Fire Saga, then hopefully this will encourage them to go and see Fire Saga. It is available on Netflix. It is a Netflix movie. So if you've got a Netflix account, it's there. And genuinely, it's a fun way to spend two and a, two and a bit hours. Is, that, is this movie really two and a bit hours? Anyway, so the next episode, I've really just got a couple of things to say about it. The first thing is greetings and salutations. And the next thing is, what's your damage, Heather? I'm not going to apologise for the terrible accent, but I am going to say that the next episode is going to be on the cult classic black comedy, Heathers, which is something that I've actually been trying to schedule on this podcast for so long. It's always been bumped. And so I made a point this month to say, no, I am definitely going to be doing an episode on Heathers. I adored this movie growing up, genuinely. I'm a huge fan of Winona Ryder, and I've featured Winona Ryder a couple of times on this podcast already. But I'm really, really looking forward to going into the history and legacy of Heathers. So please join me next week for that episode. And as I said, this podcast is free and it always will be free. But if you do want to help support this podcast financially, you can do so by signing up at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And as always, huge, huge thank you to the wonderful patrons of this podcast. I also have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can get in touch by emailing verbaldiorama at gmail.com or by going over to the website, which is verbaldiorama.com. And I know, I know, I know what you're here for. It will never be enough. I only want to hear Yaya Ding Dong. And finally. Who wants to hear Eurovision song? No. No. Yaya Ding Dong. I did it. I did it. I'm not going to do it again. What? You, you want it again? Bye.